Hello everyone, welcome to the podcast. Quick disclaimer before we get into this episode, it's my week. Hi. Uh, this episode is a bit spooky. It's a bit of a ghost story, if you will. Ghost story, but it's real. But there are going to be mentions of rumoured incest, rumoured sexual assault, because none of these are proven as of yet, acts of murder, murder, violence, that some people may find upsetting or disturbing, or you might find this a bit creepy, because this is a bit of a creepy episode, and I'm not gonna lie, her face is fucking terrifying. Uh, but yeah. By the way, I'm saying that because it's a very old Victorian-esque picture, and it's kind of very typical, like, Halloween decoration vibe. But yeah, on with the episode. What up? Hello. Hello, how are you? I'm doing good! Doing good? That's good! <laughs> Yeah, I'm doing great, yeah. Woohoo! <laughs> we are recording on a Saturday. You're only getting a day late this week. Don't be moaning. And also, it's my birthday weekend, bitches, so respect it. I am classing it as birthday weekend. My birthday's on a Sunday, so it's classified. Yeah, I, th- I think, you know. I've always, in, uh... I always think that if your birthday's on a Sunday, you can class it as a birthday weekend. If your birthday's on a Wednesday, then you can class it as a birthday week because you're going to be celebrating on the weekend anyway, so you might as well. Yeah, I feel like, I mean, any day you could class it as a whole week now. I think, I think in this day and age, people deserve to have their birthday over more than just a day. Yeah. Unless they've not earned it, though. Yeah, unless, <laughs> you you're, know. unless you're okay. <laughs> Which, with this case today, can uh, people can go on either side, because a lot of people go on either side with this case. Some people do the whole, they definitely did it, and they definitely didn't. This is also oh. a bit of like a ghost story in a way because the house where all these where this murder happened is still up and it is used as a bed and breakfast with everything still in its place and as a ghost hunting experience. Oh, so you can you can have a nice You can literally stay there, yeah. And go ghost hunting. Oh, nice. Uh so this to be fair, when you look at the picture of this person, you do kind of go, yeah, no, kind of like ghost story-esque. I can see it. So this is the case of Lizzie Borden. No idea. I don't know. I don't know a Lizzie. Any American listeners will probably go, okay, no, I know this case. Nah, I've never seen this wife. This wifey, never seen her. Oh, uh, she's not a wife. So she. I said wifey. Oh, wifey. That's just the term. For, that's just the term. So, this is a case that happened in Fall River, Massachusetts, in America. This is an old case as well, because this happened in the 1800s. So, I've I've been into the old cases, as you can tell recently. But yeah, this one, kind of creepy. Because obviously people do stay at this bed and breakfast and they do apparently hear Lizzie Borden a lot. They hear the murders, they hear screams, they see Lizzie apparently. Apparently she's not very nice. (laughs) But then again, we'll go into how this all went about. So Lizzie... Andrew Borden was born on the 19th of July 1860 in Fall River, Massachusetts to Sarah Anthony Borden and Andrew Jackson Borden. Her father, who was of English and Welsh descent, grew up in very modest surroundings and struggled financially as a young man, despite being the descendant of wealthy and influential local residents. Andrew eventually uh, prospered in the manufacture and sale of furniture and caskets, then became a successful property developer. He was a director of several tile mills and owned considerable commercial property. He was also president of the Union Savings Bank and a director of the Durfee Safe Deposit and Trust Corporation. 
When he died, his estate was valued at $300,000, which is $9,630,000 today. Oof. So he was rich, rich. <laughs> this man got the money. This man was wealthy. The money, yay. So he was wealthy, but he was a bit of a cheapskate as well. So the boarding house lacked indoor plumbing, even though at the time it was common for people who were very wealthy to have indoor plumbing. Like the wealthy had this luxury, he just did not have it in his house even though he 100% had the money to do so. The house stood in an affluent area, but the wealthiest residents of Fall River, including Andrew's cousins, generally lived in the more fashionable neighbourhood, the hill which was farther from the industrial areas of the city. So they didn't live in the wealthy area. They chose not to, but he was very, very rich. But then again, I guess that's how some of the rich stay rich. In a way. Like, very much cheapskates. So I can also imagine the way that his wealth kept was he didn't spend money a lot, but also he I bet you any money he did not pay his workers a good wage, which is also how the rich stay rich. Yeah, but if you've got a lot of money and you're not fucking wasting it all, like, that's a smart move. Well, not that I know what move, that's but the fact that his house doesn't have indoor plumbing when he could. Well, I mean... You know, if you got the money for something like, which is a well, no, 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 but basic necessity. But you know, a, a house would truly benefit from having indoor plumbing in it at least. It was a big house. It was a fairly big house. But then again, America, a lot of the houses are fairly big. Yeah, so it's, from it's, what it's normal by American standard, to be fair. Yeah, I, I've seen a couple American houses, uh, and <laughs> that shit, shit, shit's massive. Yeah. And compared to, to compared to fucking someone I get well, over here. If you here. Google the boarding house, it just looks like a normal American house. Um, the green one, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that. I mean, if that's the normal house, how many fucking windows are in that? That's a lot of windows. It's fucking massive, the size of that. Like, you know, can you see? I mean, even the insides. There's the space to fucking move about and shit. But no, I, I've spoke to some of my American friends. I've seen their houses and have been like, damn. You get, you get, a, that's a lot. Yeah, you see. I wish I had that space. Yeah, you see the price of it and it's pretty like, alright price wise, but at the same time when you think about how much A they get paid and also how expensive it is just to live in America and the healthcare and all, everything that comes with the living in America, it's not great. Nah, but you know, you, you know, you see the American houses, uh, the ones that, you know, automatically get a front porch, have a, have a pretty decent sized driveway. True. And, and all that stuff. And have a lot of grass on the front. A lot of houses just have grass. Some people here don't even have grass no, at the front of their house. That's true. Or a big enough place to even be able to, you know, get a lawnmower out. So Lizzie and her older sister Emma, who was called Emma Lenora Borden, had a relatively religious upbringing and attended Central and Congressional Church. As a young woman, Lizzie was very involved in church activities, including teaching Sunday school to children on of recent Im- uh, immigrants to the United States. She was involved in religious organizations, such as the Christian Endeavor Org- uh, Society, for which she served as a secretary treasurer and contemporary social movements, such as the Women's Christian Temperance Union. She was also a member of the Ladies Fruit and Flower Mission. Three years after the death of Lizzie's mother, Andrew married a woman named Abby Durfrey Gray. Lizzie later stated that she called her stepmother Mrs. Borden. So I think it's obvious she didn't really. She didn't like her, but she'd respect her to a degree. So she wouldn't call her by her name. She would just call her Mrs. Borden. So it's very formal. Uh, she believed that Abby had married her father for his wealth. Uh, Bridget Sullivan, the Borden's 25-year-old living maid who had immigrated to the US from Ireland, testified that Lizzie and Emma rarely ate their meals with their parents. So they all had separate eating times. They never sat down as a family. I think that kind of happened after the marriage. It's a bit sad. Meal time with your family is one of the best times, you know. 
Oh. When my brother starts talking a load of shit, and it's just really weird and funny. Well, well, yeah. If you're not having a a meal where someone brings up something that's fucking just 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 kills the mood. Yeah. In May 1892, Andrew killed multiple pigeons in his barn with a hatchet, believing that they were attracting local children to hunt them, which is weird. Uh, Lizzie had recently built a roost for the pigeons, and it had been commonly recounted that she was upset over her father killing them, though the facility of this has been disputed. A family argument in July uh, 1892 prompted both sisters to take extended vacations in New Bedford. After returning to Fall River a week before the murders, Lizzie chose to stay in a local rooming house for four days before before returning to the boarding house. Like I've never, I've had arguments with my parents, but I've never had arguments with my parents that have forced me to go on an extended vacation. Yeah, and even if I did, I wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't say oh, you're going on a vacation. No, I just got mad. We got mad at each other. It's not really a vacation. Mm. Tension had been growing within the Borden family in the months before the murders, especially over Andrew's gifts or real estate to various branches of Abby's family. So before he got remarried, he wasn't really spending money. But as soon as he got married, he's buying these lavish gifts and he's buying houses for his new wife's family. So I can understand why Lizzie was kind of like, oh, she's clearly married him for the money because he never spent money before. And now all of a sudden he's buying all these expensive things. I can see her accusing her of that and why. Mm hmm. After their stepmother's sister received a house, the sisters demanded and received a rental property, which they purchased from their father for one dollar. A few weeks, be- this was a few weeks before the murders, so yeah, they're probably a bit pissed off that their father has bought his new wife's sister, so his sister-in-law, a house, but it's kind of not done anything for his daughters, which, to be fair, I'd be pissed off about. In all fairness. But then they they did sell the property back to their father for $5,000, which is $163,000 today, which is not even the price of a fucking house today. Uh, the night before the murders, John uh, Vinicum Moores, Lizzie and Emma's maternal uncle, visited and was invited to stay for a few days to discuss business matters with Andrew, leading to speculation that their conversation, particularly about property transfer, may have aggravated an already tense situation. For several days before the murders, the entire household had been violently ill. A family friend later speculated that mutton left on the stove to use in meals over over several days was the cause. Abby uh, feared that this was poison, given that Andrew had not been a popular man in Fall River. So the accusation that this may that the that they may have, that he may have been poisoned didn't necessarily just go at like any random person that might have not liked him, but Lizzie was accused multiple times of poisoning her own father. So obviously, before we go into the actual day of the murder, I want to go into the boarding house because obviously it is still up. It is still there. It looks in very well kept condition to be fair do you think it's uh no i don't know the, i don't know the right term but you know when they they classify buildings as something that, that means they can't be destroyed you think it's one of them i can't, I can't remember the name of it in america it's weird though because they one thing we've noticed in the uk they've knocked down houses after really really bad murders the only one they've not done was Dennis Nielsen's flat but that was because I think it was because it was a flat so they can't knock down an entire building no because he lived on the very top yeah and he lived on the top floor as well you can't just chop off the top of the house yeah exactly so whereas with um, the Moores murders they knocked down Ian Brady and Myra Hindley's house they knocked down Fred and Rose West's house didn't they do the same with some other stuff as well that wasn't just houses? I'm pretty sure there's other cases where other areas where stuff just got demolished 
Um, they do but it, yeah. they do it the murders have taken place inside the house. Like, they don't do it if, like, oh, this person lived here. They do it if the murders had been yeah. there. So, mm -hmm. that's why Peter Sutcliffe's house is still where it is. But and I guess for some of them as well, it's uh, if it's knocked down, it's because, well, the way it happened, it wasn't a house, it was in something else, and then they've just had to re-put yeah. over that. But, yeah. Um, yeah, basically, it was stuff like that. But, yeah, I know. I, I, well, if murders have happened here, but I just thought maybe it was a, the case of... It was a, a building of interest. I don't know what they really call it, and they thought, "Well, we can't knock it down, so we'll just make it a bed and breakfast and it's a historical landmark." On, I think he just kept on getting bought by people over the years. So because people were actually buying it, and it was never, I think they knock they would knock it down if it was never selling. But it kept on getting sold. It kept on people kept buying it over the years. So because it was never a house that was just derelict and left there. There was no, really no need in people's eyes to knock it down because people ke clearly kept living in it. Yeah, and I guess, well, at this point now, it got to a point where it's like, well, we can make some tourism and money off of this. Why knock it down? Well, yeah, exactly. There's because always, you know what it's like. Well, it's like how um, the actual Conjuring house, that's still there. and Is it? Yes, yeah, so that's still there. Someone lives in it. Well... The Conjuring. He, I mean, props to people who do live in houses that have some interest because the worst, the worst thing I've seen, well, especially with some people, is that yeah, it's all fine and dandy being like yeah, um, well, uh, I'll buy this house or um, I guess with the Lizzie Borden house as well. I know it's like a bed and breakfast, and they don't care because they want people to come there. But I know from certain places that have been bought or um, bought, and they were in some infamous TV show or whatnot. The public come twenty four seven, and you get so pissed off and annoyed that the public are visiting there. I mean, I know it's um, I think with this, having a lot. Of... I think with this one, I think the reason why there's not been many issues around it is because it was so long ago. Yeah, it's over a hundred years ago, so I feel like that's why. Because no one's really go. If it, it's not like Fred, it's like it's it's not like with Fred and Rose West, for example, where that was like thirty years ago, where press would probably still go around. And fog would still go to the house, yeah. Whereas now it's kind of like it was over a hundred years ago. The murders, like it, it's been it's been over a hundred years. Like you're not gonna constantly go around with press. That no, but you meant like, like yeah. it's like I meant like the public going twenty four seven because I know. Well, um, well, I mean. Uh, well, I mean, I know, I know it's not the same, but I know in the UK for the whole the thing with the Teletubby set, she had to flood that because she lived on a farm and folk kept coming up to the fucking farm. And then I know of in the US, I've probably explained this beforehand, where the actual house that was used in the Amazing World of Gumballs had to been blurred on Google Street View because people kept coming to the house because it's an actual house. And obviously, if somebody buys the house in they tell them look it was used in this that's fine but if you have the public coming 24 7 can i get a photo the same thing with the breaking bad house and some of the other ones you know 24 7 you, you know like, you don't get any peace you see with any houses that were used in cutaways for like ne for no for nickelodeon and disney shows i've seen a lot of it where people are like oh here's the hannah montana house here's the Drake and Josh house. And oh, and they they've twenty. Been, they've, they've, been, they've been knocked down now, both of them. Wait, have they? Yeah, 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 both of them been knocked down. Well, nah, nah. The Drake and Josh house was still up. It's gone. What? Yeah. No, they visited it. Yeah, they visited it recently, and they saw it was being it was being like knocked down. Are you joking? No. But like this is a thing where like also in the UK, prime, massive prime example of the public just turning up to houses that are It's gone. <gasps> that are like what? that are like popular is um Gwen from Gavin and Stacey, her house in the show in on Barry Island in Wales, that is constantly hounded by the public. Like on a like on a regular basis. Oh, does oh, my mate mentioned that? Does the Fresh Meat House get that in Manchester? Probably, yeah. Because I know that that because if you if you film on a real location, it's probably hard you know. to find the Fresh Meat House though because every single house on that road looks exactly the fucking same. 
Ah, oh, well, no, I've just found it straight when you Google it. <laughs> but it's just one of those things, if you use a real-life location, you're going to get people 24-7. Yeah, I they have it a lot, and people ask to go in all the fucking time. I can't imagine how annoying that is. I, I, I wonder if, in the case of... I know people have it a lot, in, I'm just going to mention the Simpsons house, the actual one that they built, the, the woman doesn't let people go into the house too often. But I doubt... Do you think much people actually do visit the flats of, like, um, Dennis Nielsen? A couple times, and because there's no way they don't get to anyone. The curiousness of people would, but I doubt they'd get bombarded. But in this case, you know, they've turned into a prophet and made a bed and breakfast. Although, if you are scared of ghosts and like whatnot, etc., etc., would you stay there? Probably not. But if people are if people are coming back and saying that, oh yeah, I heard stuff or whatnot, and then more people are saying it, then then it starts to be like, okay, maybe. Maybe it's not just one person making porkies. Yeah. So the house is as obviously as we've mentioned has since been operated as a bed and breakfast. It's been a thing since 1996. Oh wow. It's been under ownership of Martha McGinn who inherited the house. Martha's grandparents purchased the house on the 4th of August 1948. According to Martha McGinn, the room where Lizzie's stepmother, Abby Borden, was found murdered, spoiler alert, but this is what it's about, is the most requested room of the bedrooms at the bed and breakfast. Um, oh. Fall River Historical Society promotes the Lizzie Borden bed and breakfast as a tourist attraction. Tours of the house often make reference to the possibility of ghostly activity, and in their book, The Ghost Chronicles, self-proclaimed medium Maureen Wood and self-proclaimed paranormal scientist Ron Kolek describe experiencing ghostly events in the house. However, investigator of claims of the paranormal, Joe Nickel, reports that these claims are based upon either non-verbal personal feelings of ghostly presence or the use of well-known and well-understood techniques like table tipping that, like Ouija board and dowsing rod effects, involve... Uh, the idomotor effect rather than the presence of a ghostly spirit. So they think that it's just kind of like a con and it's like a little theatrical thing that they put on for the touristy att- attraction of it all. The house was... I mean... I mean, the house was listed for sale in t- in 2021 and was sold to Lance Zal for $2 million. Zal stated he would keep the property operating as a bed and breakfast and hoped to expand the business to include other Lizzie Borden-themed activities in the future. It does. I'm looking at it on the map, and I'm not going to lie. It does look just so out of place with everything else, considering how long the house has been standing and just just, just the technological advances of how we make buildings now. This the, the this the stuff in front of it. There's there's like a workplace. It's so weird to think that someone goes to work and go, Where'd you work? I work in front of Lizzie 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 Borden's house. Oh, okay. <laughs> and uh, I just work in front of my haunted fucking house. Else- but it does look so out of place because the green is just so off. Yeah. So when I was doing my research, I was listening to a podcast called Morbid and they did an episode on Lizzie Borden. And their first part of the episode, so they they did two parts, but the first part they did, they recorded it in the Lizzie Borden house. Oh, did they? Yeah. What's this? It's whoa! It's weird because the the massive complex next to it's called Borden as well, and they have oh, well I don't know what oh that's what they call it. Well, of course it's an American flag outside, but they've actually you know what what's the, I don't know what they call, shrubbery. You know when they like carve bushes into the shape of letters. Yeah. The building next to it has Borden Place East in front of it so i don't know if oh it's actually called borden street yeah so did they rename the stuff after her uh, i think so yeah it's not oh like that's her, nuts it's a family isn't it it's a whole murders oh what's this borden place is estate i i just thought it was that pure coincidence but no you know but don't go doing that don't just go oh yeah i'm gonna commit a commit a bunch of uh, murders in the hopes that i will get stuff named after me <laughs> now that won't work so, on Thursday, the 4th of August, 1892, Morse arrived in the evening of the 3rd of August and slept in the guest bedroom that night. 
After breakfast next morning, at which Andrew, Abby, Lizzie, Morse and Sullivan were present, Andrew and Morse went to the sitting room where they chatted for nearly an hour. Morse left her around 8.48am to buy a pair of oxen and visit his niece in Fall River, planning to return to the boarding house for lunch at noon. Andrew left for his morning walk sometime after 9am. Although the cleaning of the guest room was one of Lizzie and Emma's regular chores, Abby went upstairs sometime between 9am and 10.30am to make the bed. According to the forensic investigation, Abby was facing her killer at the time of the attack. She was first struck on the side of the head with a hatchet, which cut her just above her ear, causing her to turn and fall face down on the floor, creating con- concussions on her. Uh, sorry, creating issues on her nose and forehead. Her killer then struck her multiple times, delivering seventeen more direct hits to the back of her head, which killed her. Yeah, seventeen hits to the back of her head with a hatchet would do it. Yeah, I mean, getting hit with a hatchet's not its not pleasant, is it? No, it's a fucking axe, isn't it? When Andrew returned at around 10.30am, his key failed to open the door, so he, knocked Sullivan, so he knocked and Sullivan went to unlock the door, finding it jammed. She uttered a curse as she did so. She would later testify that she heard Lizzie laughing immediately after this. She did not see Lizzie, but stated that the laughter was coming from the top of the stairs. This is another thing that people claim to be able to hear in the boarding house when they visit. They just hear Lizzie laughing at the top of the stairs, which is fucking creepy, and fuck that. I mean, it. I feel like it's one of those things where if you go there, there's, there's that one person who would just go there to laugh and play up, but then actually might hear it themselves. Now, I mean... For me personally, like hearing a creepy laugh isn't that scary for me, but I know for others that's like creeps them out and gets them all uh, uh, scared. But for me, it's uh, just a creepy laugh from someone, eh. So hearing Lizzie laugh at the top of the stairs was considered significant as Abby was already dead by this time and her body would not have been visible to anyone on the home's second floor. Lizzie later denied being upstairs and testified that her father had asked her where Abby was, to which she replied that a messenger had delivered Abby a summons to visit a sick friend. Sullivan stated that she had then removed Andrew's boots and helped him into his slippers before he lay down on the sofa for a nap. She testified that she she was in her third floor room resting from cleaning windows when just before 11, 10 past 11 in the morning she heard Lizzie call from downstairs she called Maggie come quick father's dead somebody came in and killed him Abby, uh, sorry, Andrew was slumped on the couch in the downstairs sitting room struck 10 or 11 times with a hatchet like weapon one of his eyes had been split cleanly in two suggesting that he had been asleep when attacked his uh. yeah. Yeah, it's a gross image, isn't it? My flatmate's terrible with eyes, so if I said that to her, she would probably just hate me for it. Oh, getting the eyes splitting. Yeah. His still bleeding wounds suggested that this was a very recent attack. Dr. Bowden, the family's physician, arrived from his home across the street and pronounced both victims dead. Detectives estimated that Andrew's death had occurred at 11am. I love how they had to get a family physician to arrive from his home to determine if they were dead or not i think it was kind of a given yeah i think you can tell when someone's dead it's like, oh, he's got a hatchet right in his head right and it's split his eye into yeah no he definitely ain't dead yeah i th- i think he's all right yeah get up come on get up get up you're right oh get it off put, put uh, a blue paper towel on it <laughs> oh yeah just a shit ton of blue paper towels on it and you'll be golden you'll be right Lizzie's initial answers to the police officer's questions were at times strange and contradictory. Initially, she reported hearing a groan or a scraping noise or a distress call before entering the house. Two hours later, she told police she had heard nothing and entered the house not realising that anything was wrong. When asked where her stepmother was, she recounted Abby receiving a note asking her to visit a sick friend. She also stated that she thought Abby had returned and asked if someone could go upstairs and look for her. 
Sullivan and a neighbour, Mrs. Churchill, were halfway up the stairs, their eyes level with the floor, when they looked into the guest room and saw Abby laying face down on the floor. Most of the officers who interviewed Lizzie reported that they disliked her attitude. Some said she was too calm and poised. Despite her behaviour and changing alibis, she was not checked for bloodstains. Police did search her room, but it was, cursory in- it was a cursory inspection. At the trial, they admitted to not doing a proper search because Lizzie was not feeling well. They were subsequently criticised for their lack of diligence. Yeah. <laughs> they are, yeah, the, the suspect is not feeling well. We will not search her room and not think this is fucking weird. It's like... She said that you can't, oh yeah mate, you can't come into my room and inspect it for the murder of my dad and stepmom because you know, I'm not feeling too great. Like, well, we need to go search it anyway. Yeah, but I'm not feeling too well, so I'd rather if you didn't. Well, that's a bit weird. Why don't you want us looking in? In the basement, police found two hatchets, two axes, and a hatchet head with a broken handle. The hatchet head was suspected of being the murder weapon as the break in the handle appeared fresh and the ash and dust on the head unlike that on the other bladed tools appeared to have been deliberately applied to make it look as if it had been in the basement for some time however none of those tools were removed from the house because of the mysterious illness that had struck the household before the murders the family's milk and the victim's stomachs were tested for poison no poison was found residents suspected lizzie of purchasing hydrocinic acid in a diluted form from the local druggist her defence was that she inquired about the acid in order to clean her furs. Lizzie and Emma's friend, Alice Russell, decided to stay with the sisters the night following the murders while Moore spent the night in the attic room. Police were stationed around the house on the night of the 4th of August, during which an officer said he had seen Lizzie enter the cellar with Russell, carrying a crozine lamp and a slot pail. He stated he saw both women exit the cellar, after which Lizzie returned alone, though she, though he was unable to see what she was doing. He stated it appeared she was bent over the sink. On the 5th of August, Morse left the, the Borden residence and was mobbed by hundreds of people. Police had to escort him back to the house. The following day, police conducted a more thorough search of the house, inspecting the sisters' clothing and confiscating the broken-handled hatchet head. That evening, a police officer and the mayor visited the house, and Lizzie was informed that she was a suspect in the murders. The next morning, Russell entered the kitchen to find Borden tearing up a dress. She explained that she was planning to put it on fire because it was covered in paint. It was never determined whether it was the dress she had been wearing on the day of the murders. Bit weird, that. Just a bit weird. Bit, bit, bit sus. Sussy. Bit sussy. Lizzie appeared. Lizzie appeared in the inquest hearing on the eighth of August. Her request to have her family attorney present was refused under a state statute providing that an inquest must be held in private. She had been prescribed regular doses of morphine to calm her nerves, and it is possible that her testimony was affected by this. Her behaviour was erratic and she often refused to answer a question even if the answer would be beneficial to her. She often contradicted herself and provided alternating accounts of the morning in question, such as saying that she was in the kitchen reading a magazine when her father arrived home, then saying she was in the dining room doing some ironing and then saying she was coming coming down the stairs. So she couldn't actually point where she was when when the murders actually happened, like at all. The district attorney was very aggressive and confrontational. What a shock. They always fucking are. On the 11th of August, Lizzie was served with a warrant of arrest and jailed. The inquest testimony, the basis for the modern debate regarding Lizzie's guilt or innocence, was later ruled inadmissible at her trial in June 1893. Contemporary newspaper articles noted that Lizzie possessed a stolid demeanour and bit her lips, flushed and bent forward. Uh, she went forward towards attorney Adams. It was also reported that the testimony provided in the inquest had caused a change of opinion among her friends who have been here, have been mostly strongly maintaining her innocence. 
The inquest received significant press attention nationwide, including an extensive three-page write-up in the Boston Globe. The grand jury began hearing evidence on the 7th of November and Borden indicted on the 2nd of December. Lizzie's trial took place in New Bedford, starting on the 5th of June, 1893. Prosecuting attorneys were Hosina Hosea M. Knowlton and future United States Supreme Court Justice William H. Moody. Defending were Andrew V. Jennings, Melvin O. Adams and former Massachusetts Governor George D. Robinson. Five days before the trial's commencement on the 1st of June, another axe murder occurred in Fall River. This time the victim was Bertha Manchester who was found hacked to death in her kitchen. The similarities between hers and Borden's murders were striking and noted by jurors. However, Jose Correa de Mello, a Portuguese immigrant, was later convicted of Manchester's murders in 1894 and was determined to not have been in the vicinity of Fall River at the time of the Borden murders. A prominent point of discussion in the trial was that the hatchet head was found in the basement, which was not a convincingly which was not convincingly demonstrated by the prosecution to be a murder weapon. Prosecutors argued that the killer had removed the handle because it could have been covered in blood. One officer testified that a hatchet handle was found later at later near the hatchet head, but another officer contradicted this. So one's telling the truth and one's bullshitting for the for the sake of bullshitting. Though no bloody clothing was found at the scene, Russell testified that on the 8th of August 1982, she had witnessed Lizzie burn a dress in the kitchen stove, saying that it had been ruined when she brushed against wet paint. During the course of the trial, defence never attempted to challenge this statement. I mean, I would. I would definitely challenge that statement. I mean, he's just burning clothes. Yeah, like, oh, right, she got some paint on it. But... Imagine people did that now. Oops, got a tiny bit of paint on my clothes. Oh, time to burn them. Yeah, let me just burn my clothing instead of washing it and attempting to get rid of the stain, which she clearly didn't do. And also, why didn't they ask any other person in the house if there was anywhere in the house that had wet paint? Yeah, that is a bit... Why didn't you just go up to like the people who were in the house? on that day because there was two other people in the house when the murders took when the when the murders happened why didn't you just ask them what areas of the house had wet paint that day and if surely because surely they'd know if any redecorating was going on that surely back then they still did the thing of writing on a bit of paper wet paint and sticking it on a wall or whatever well yeah like surely if it's like that's not a new thing. I'm sure they've been doing that for years and yeah, years now. Yeah, stupid. And clearly, if she had gotten paint on her dress, she was just as fucking stupid. Yeah. Dumb bitch scraping a fucking <laughs> ass up against wet paint. Oh, yeah, it's just paint. No, I ain't blood, promise. Why didn't they ask what colour the paint was? I don't know. Maybe she... Oh, fuck, fuck. No, it's... But... Oh, yeah, it's red paint. Oh, a bit weird, that, ain't it? Because your maid has just said, your maid who would most likely be doing the redecorating has just said that there's no wet paint or red paint that day, so clearly lies. Why didn't no one ask that question? Dumb fucks. Ah, uh, humans haven't gotten any smarter. Humans have not gotten any smarter with murder cases in the fucking slightest. They just do not ask the right questions. And I like how one officer has said that the hatchet handle was found near the hatchet head. But this other off- police officer was like, no, the fucking one. I was like, all right, which one is telling the truth? Why have you come up with this fucking story and Genius is telling us that they ain't fucking true, dipshit? What? In, in the ta- it's always in the time where the right questions need to be asked. They're just not asked. Like- and then it's after everything's done. It's like, oh, I should have asked that. Like, it's just fucking stupid motherfuckers. Lizzie's presence at the home was also a point of dispute during the trial. According to testimony, Sullivan entered the second floor at around 10.58am and left Lizzie and her father downstairs. So Sullivan's saying that Lizzie was downstairs with the dad at the time of the murder, because this would have been literally a few minutes before the murder happened. So Lizzie was the last person seen with him. 
Lizzie told several people that at this time she went into the barn and was not in the house for 20 minutes or possibly half an hour. Uh, hi. I'm going to try not to giggle at this person's name. Hyman Lubzinsky. No, Hyman Lubinsky. His name's Hyman. What do, do you think whenever he broke a bone, do you think someone just said, haha, you broke it, you broke Hyman? Oh, I don't get it. Hyman? It's like, it's, when, when, when a woman loses her virginity, it's like, oh, you broke your Hyman. Because they break the hymen inside. How would I know? Why would they know that? Why would they know that? This is basic biology, man. So, Human. wait. When a woman loses her virginity. Well, yeah, hymen is what they. I've not fucking lost my virginity. How am I meant to know if a fucking woman's losing their virginity? What it's called and shit. It's basic biology. Fuck. I don't even study biology. Do you think I? It's basic knowledge, man. At least you know now. At least you know. <laughs> Yeah, I'm going to use that now. That now that I know, I'm just going to keep saying it in every sentence this, or in every this, conversation. This, this is now Matt's sex edge. Sex edge. Sex ed. Uh, yes, I am on the edge. <laughs> I'm edging. Anyway, Hyman testified for the defense that she saw Lizzie. Oh my God, it's a woman's name. Poor fucking woman. Oh my God, it's even worse. Oh my God, she's called Hyman and she's a woman. Oh, poor bitch. Bitch. But then again, they probably didn't laugh at that much shit like, like, like that back then. Like, if she was called Hymen in today's times uh, and she was a woman, then that is just fucking tragic. That's child abuse, that. That's child abuse. When people get, when parents give the kids names, that's just definitely going to get them bullied. I'm just thinking, you are horrible. You knew what yeah. was going to happen. You knew what was going to Parents have the authority. Like, when parents name the kids certain names and you're just thinking that's just child abuse, you know they're going to get bullied. And it's like, oh, I want them to have a thick skin. It's like, no, that, that, fuck off. Name I think it's that point of what the parents think is okay and then they don't realise how the younger generation does things. Well, I say parents does things. Modern, reacts is different. Parents in modern day times naming your kid Fanny, that's just fucking stupid. I mean, Fanny's an old name. Yeah, I know, but it's like, you don't call your kid Fanny now. Uh, no, Fanny's a Scottish name. Fanny's a, Fanny's a very Scottish thing, I would say. Just someone's calling them Fanny. Yeah, you still wouldn't do it though. No, still do it. no, just call them vagina. Exactly. So Hyman testified for the defence that she saw Lizzie leaving the barn at ten o three a.m. and Charles Gardner confirmed the time. So two people have witnessed her going into the barn. So two people have witnessed that she was not in the house at that time at 11 at 10 past 11 a.m lizzie called sullivan downstairs and told her that andrew had been murdered and ordered her not to enter the room instead lizzie sent her to get a doctor so that also contradicts lizzie's statement and that she was in the barn for 20 minutes to 25 minutes to half an hour because clearly she wasn't clearly she was only in the barn for 10 minutes or less. So that fucks that up. Both victims' heads had been removed during autopsy and the skulls were admitted as evidence during the trial and presented on the 5th of June, 1893. Fuck that. Why are you pro They brought the fucking heads out during the trial. That's weird. I mean, I get it, because now in, mod now in modern day times they'd show a photo of the autopsy. They wouldn't bring out the fucking head. Imagine that, though. So, like, and about the autopsy, uh, we have it now. Here it is. And this gets wheeled in. Yeah, and you just have, like, um, fa fancy entrance music. WWE I was music. so horrible, though. Like, depending on the way per the person's killed, it's like, oh, uh, and the, the person was beheaded. And we have the best, uh, the severed head here. Hey. And everyone just gets to see. <laughs> that would be fucking horrible. You can't do that. So... People say that, oh, this is a weird behaviour. No, this is normal. Apparently when they brought the heads into the courtroom, Lizzie fainted. I mean, yeah. That's a normal... Out of everything that's like a bit sussy about her, that's normal. Yeah, I guess for some people they wouldn't faint, but a lot of people just seeing a head on the spot would be I like... Well, oh. They wouldn't have pre-warned or anything. They would have just gone... 
certainly would have just brought up the whole... Oh, that's like, even worse. I bet, I bet you they didn't warn anyone. But they just went, okay, so yeah, hatchet, blah, 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 blah. Their heads were in this condition during the autopsy. Here's the proof of this. Brought out the heads. Lizzie's like, fucking hell. Yeah, but you you, you know those moments when you uh, just unexpectedly stumble upon something. They're like, ah! Ah, what was that? Ah, wish I hadn't seen that. Ah, sort of thing. It was definitely one of those moments where that just comes out and people are like, oh shit, and they just didn't want to see that, and then they're discarded, you know, and they're like, oh god, don't don't do that. Well, yeah, exactly. <sighs> Jesus Christ! Evidence was excluded that she had sought to purchase a prusic uh, acid. Uh, to apparently clean the cloak from the local druggist on the day before the murders, so that the, the druggist was like, no, no she didn't. This was not true. The judge ruled that the incident was too remote in time to have any connection. The presiding associate justice, Justice Dewey, delivered a lengthy summary that supported the defence as his charge to the jury before it was sent to deliberate on the 20th of June, 1893. After an hour and a half deliberation, the jury acquitted Lizzie Borden of the murders. Upon ex exiting the courthouse, she told reporters that she was the happiest woman in the world. The trial has been compared to the later, later trials of Bruno Humptman, Ethel and Julius Rosenberg, and O.J. Simpson as a landmark in publicity and public interest in the history of American legal proceedings. So one thing a lot of people find weird about Lizzie is that how she reacted after the murders, how she acted around like in public and stuff like that. So obviously one thing that was used to be a whole thing back in these times, when someone died in a family, the family members would go through a year of mourning. A whole year? Yeah. Typically about a year of mourning, so they tend to wear black all the way through the year and all this kind of stuff and um lizzie didn't do this shit <laughs> um she did not go into what is typical mourning she apparently seemed very happy and she wore bright flowery colors which was not appropriate apparently <laughs> she did the complete opposite of what she was meant to do and people thought that was fucking weird Ooh. They're like, she's not in mourning. I was like, well, to be fair, she probably didn't, even if she did do it or not, she probably didn't like her dad from what it seemed like. Although acquitted at trial, Lizzie remained the prime suspect in her father and stepmother's murders. Writer Victoria Lincoln proposed in 1967 that she might have committed the murders in a fugue state. Another prominent suggestion was that she was physically and sexually abused by her father, which, which drove her to kill him. There is very little evidence to support this, but incest is not a topic that would have been discussed at that time, and the methods for collecting physical evidence would have been quite different in 1892. This belief was intimidated in local papers at the time of the murders and was revisited by scholar Marcia Car uh, Carlyle in, in a 1992 essay. Mystery author... Uh, Evan Hunter, in his eight, eight, uh, 1984 novel Lizzie, suggested that Lizzie committed the murders after being caught in a tryst with Sullivan. McBain elaborated on his speculation in a 1999 interview, speculating that Abby had caught the two together and had reacted with horror and disgust, and him in a rage of a hatch... and him in a rage with a hatchet, and when he, when he reacted as Abby had, he further speculated that Sullivan disposed of the hatchet somewhere afterwards. In her later years, Lizzie was rumoured to be a lesbian, but there is no, there was no such speculation about Sullivan, who later married a man she met while working as a maid in Beauty, Montana. But then again, she might have married him to basically be a cover-up. That happens. Especially back then, that 100% might have happened. Well... Back, yeah, back and then that might—that's probable, but there's no evidence to support that either of them were gay. But if they were, they definitely would have hid that because they would have gotten. Yeah, yeah, they, well, yeah, they would have fucking hid that so well. Sullivan died in beauty in beauty in 1948. Allegedly, she had 
she gave a deathbed confession to her sister in which she stated that she had changed her testimony on the stand in order to protect Lizzie. Another significant suspect is John Morse, Lizzie's maternal uncle, who rarely met with the family after his sister died, but had slept in the house the night before the murders. According to law enforcement, he had provided an absurdly perfect and over-detailed alibi for the death of Abby Borden. Morse was considered a suspect by police for a period of time. Others noted as potential suspects include Sullivan, possibly in retaliation for being ordered to clean the windows on a hot day. The day of the murders were unusually hot and at the time she was still recovering from the mystery illness that had struck the household. I don't think that would piss you right off, but I don't think that would drive you to kill, would it? No. Like, that definitely won't drive you to kill. Fuck that. A man named William Borden, suspected to be Andrew's illegitimate son, was noted as a possible suspect by author Arnold Brown, who surmised that William had tried and failed to extort money from his alleged father. Author Leonard Rabello, after extensive research on William, proved she was not Andrew's son. Although Emma had an alibi at Fairhaven, about 15 miles from Fall River, crime writer Frank Spurg proposed in his 1984 book Lizzie that she might have secretly visited the residence to kill her parents before returning to Fairhaven to receive the telegram informing her of the murders. That's a bit of effort, that though, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a bit too much effort. I don't think she would. Nah, I, I'd rather. I, 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 I don't think so. I think that's too much effort. Like, just let's trek 15 miles in 1892 to go commit these two murders and go back inside. Nah, I can't. Nah. Plus, also. It's a long way to trek! Also, someone would have spotted her. Like, going up, being at the house, or going into the house at least. Yeah. Like, I highly doubt that this was the case. After the trial, the Borden sisters moved into a large modern house in the Hill neighborhood in Fall River. Around this time, Lizzie began using the name Lizbeth A. Borden. Apparently, she preferred the name Lizbeth. She hated the name Lizzie. She apparently really fucking hated that name. So, she changed her name to Lizbeth A. Borden as soon as the murders were after, after she was declared innocent. At their new house... I was just going to say, Lizzie's a nice name before anyone... I think Lizzie's a nice name. I like Lizzie, but yeah, she didn't like it. Um, So she changed it to Lizbeth. At their new house, which Lizbeth dubbed Maplecroft, they had a staff staff that included living maids, a housekeeper, and a coachman. Because Abby was ruled to have died before Andrew, her estate went first to Andrew, and then at his death, passed to his daughters as part of his estate. A considerable settlement, however, was paid to settle claims by Abby's family. Despite the acquittal, Lizzie was ostracised by Fall River Society. Her name was again brought into the public eye when she was accused of shoplifting in Providence, Rhode Island in 1897. In 1905, shortly after an argument over a party that Lizbeth had given for actress Nance O'Neill, Emma moved out of the house and never saw her sister again. Lizzie was ill in her last year following the removal of her gallbladder. She died of pneumonia on the 1st of June 1927 in Fall River. Funeral details were not published and very few attended. Nine days later, Emma died from chronic nepsis in a nursing home in Newmarket, New Hampshire, having moved to this location in 1923 for both health reasons and to avoid renewed attention following the publication of another book about the murders. The Borden sisters, neither of whom had ever married, were buried side by side in the family plot in Oak Grove Cemetery. At the time of her death, Borden was worth over $250,000. So you're talking like... 9, 8 mil? Uh, let's see how so that so when she died so that was 1927 
You you can't. So. Oh, people do leave stuff at a grave, leave money, but uh, the big, the big. Um... Nineteen twenty-seven, two hundred and fifty thousand dollars is equivalent to about four million three hundred and eighty-three thousand seven hundred and fifty dollars today. I'm a bit confused why someone's left a psychedelic phone case in front of a grave. Along with Easter scenes stuff, but no, I just saw the 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 main tall one, the AJ Borden gravestone, which is like a big pillar, has actually been vandalized by uh, graffiti a couple times. Shock horror. Yeah, well, that shows how people feel. I don't know why people are leaving like money and stuff yeah, on her grave. Is that money? So she owned a house on yeah, the corner money, yeah. of French Street and Belmont Street. Several office buildings. She owned shares in several utilities, two cars, and a large amount of jewelry. She left $30,000 to the Fall River Animal Rescue League and $500 in trust for perpetual care for her father's grave. So, despite, you know, obviously her being accused of murdering her father, she left a sum of money to make sure that her father's grave would carry on being taken care of. The closest friend and cousin each received $6,000 substantial sums at the time of the estate's distribution in 1927, and numerous friends and family members each received between $1,000 and $5,000. Okay, now. That is the case, Lizzie Borden. Bit of a short one today, because it's not really too much to go into it, because obviously it is like two murders. But for what... It shows um, Lizzie was acquitted for the crimes. She was not declared the murder of her father and stepmother. And technicality, the actual murderer was never arrested or charged. I mean, I can see why it's one of those cases where people believe or don't believe. Interesting. Very interesting. Uh, I know nothing about this because the very older cases for me is just uh, there's I don't know them at all. So obviously a lot of people like to um, when it's like an old case or a case that is very popular there's obviously it's obviously used in pop culture a lot. So naturally Lizzie Borden has been brought into culture in some ways. So obviously you've got the house that is now bed and breakfast and it's all kitted out with like 1890s kind of themed styling to try and make it as accurate as possible. Like pieces of evidence used in the trial including the hatchet head are preserved at the Fall River Historical Society. So if you're ever around there and you want to go check it out, then do it. The case was memorialised in a popular skipping rope rhyme sung to the tune of then popular song Tararara Boom Day. It goes, Lizzie Borden took an axe and gave her mother 40 wax. When she saw that she had done, she gave her father 41. Andrew Borden now is dead. Lizzie hit him on the head. Up in heaven he will sing. On the gallows she will swing. That was a fucking skipping rope rhyme. Really? Well, can't, can't say I ever sang that one. That's a skipping rope rhyme. Can you imagine a bunch of kids singing that while they're skipping? That's fucking creepy, man. Yeah, can't say I ever, ever uh, sang that oh, one. Oh, to be fair, we had the, like, really dark versions of the Barney Dinosaur rhymes. Oh, yeah, we had that too. I used to sing those when I was, like, seven or eight, and I'll listen, and then if I sing, I can't remember the original Barney the Dinosaur rhymes now because of that. Oh, yeah, it's the same. You know when uh, songs just get altered, and now that's the one you always think of? That is the exact case. So she has been depicted in music, radio, film, theatre, and television, often in association with the murders of which she was acquitted. Uh, among the earlier portrayals on stage was John Colton and Carlton Miles's 1933 play at Nine Pine Street, in which uh, Lillian Gish played Effie Holden, a character who is based on Lizzie Borden. 
The play was not successful and only ran for 28 performances. Probably because it was 1933 and she died less than 10 years beforehand. It's a bit weird. Yeah. Uh, Carmen Matthews played Lizzie Borden in the Alfred Hitchcock Pres- Presents episode The Older Sister with Joan Loring as Emma and Hitchcock's uh, daughter Pat as the servant Margaret. Uh, this aired in 1953 and takes place in 1893. Uh, one and so more recent in a way. Lifetime producer Lizzie Borden took an axe in 2014, which was a television film with Christina Ricci portraying Liz, uh, uh, Lizzie Borden. Uh, so that's a bit more modern for you. Uh, a feature film called Lizzie in 2018 with Chloe uh, Sevdi as Borden and Christian Stewart as Bridget Sullivan depicts a lesbian tryst between Borden and Sullivan, which leads to the murders. That's not a shock that they've cast uh, Christian, uh, Christian Stewart in that, to be completely honest. More me. Um, in 2015, the TV show Supernatural, which is one of my favourite TV shows, by the way, I had an episode entitled Thin Lizzie. In the episode, Sam, who is played by Jared Padalecki, and Dean Winchester, who is played by Jensen Ackles, investigate the Lizzie Borden house after several people are murdered with an axe. They originally suspect the ghost of Lizzie Borden is the one who was responsible for the murders, but they then discovered that she isn't the murderer. Hmm. But yeah, that is the case of Lizzie Borden. It's a bit different, this one. It's a bit tame for me. But don't Yeah, but the older ones are just as interesting because of how, well, how serial killings and stuff have progressed and differed from those times. What back then was considered like true crime stuff is totally different from now. So it's uh, just as interesting learning about the very older cases. Oh, yeah. Plus, plus this one has, this is a case where you can actually visit some part of it, visit the house, you know, if you want to experience the, the, the eeriness, if you believe in ghosts or whatnot, but, True. I mean, I you do, know. I do, but I wouldn't fucking go there. You wouldn't, you wouldn't go to the house, you wouldn't well, even stay for bed and breakfast. No, because like, that's just typical white people in a horror movie shit, and I'm trying not to be that fucking white. Uh, well, we know how that goes, it's exactly. just... They just don't run in the right direction, etc., etc. The cliché. The the whole cliché. Which is why Scream is my favourite horror film, because it it poked fun at uh, the whole slashers and all that stuff. Um, Scream is good. But, no, I'd maybe visit it. I don't know. I've never been to the US before, so... Fair. But, yeah, guys, thank you for listening to this episode, and show week next week. Yeah, I I won't be doing an old case, that's for sure. I don't think I've ever done an old case, but... Maybe I will, I don't know. But yeah, thank you guys for listening to this episode and we will see you next week for another one. So bye-bye. Bye. I'm going to celebrate my birthday and get very, 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 very drunk. Bye, guys.